You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're talking about flying saucers. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at podcast.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Before we get started, Lauren has some exciting information that you might be interested in. Hi everyone, we're bringing back Skepticamp. September 16, which is a Saturday, from 11 o'clock until 16.30, that's 4.30 for the rest of you. <laughs> uh, we're going to be at the St. Boniface Library again, in the big room. This is our first call for speakers. Talks are scheduled for 30 minutes. That's 15 minutes of presentation and 15 minutes of questions. Yes, you do have to take questions. Anyone is welcome to speak, and we also need people who are there to learn and listen. To sign up, email skepticamp2017 at gmail.com. We'll have that in the show notes. Give us your name and the topic that you would like to speak about, and I will reply to let you know when you're on the speakers list. Attendance is free. This is a no-charge conference, and you do not get an honorarium. You get a, fa- you get a fancy name tag. There will be a bake sale, though, and we might give you a free cookie. You'll get a free cookie if you speak. We have our bake sale so we can afford the hosting fees for our website. There will also be Skepta merch. Please get it out of my basement. <laughs> so that's September 16, 2017, in Winnipeg at the St. Boniface Library. Check out uh, Winnipeg Skeptics' Facebook discussion group for more information. Thanks. As always, uh, you can check uh, winnipegskeptics.com slash events for any upcoming events, and uh, we will have a link to the Facebook event so you can RSVP uh, to tell us if you're coming uh, in the show notes. And uh, we'll keep a list of presentations and the talk schedule uh, up to date on winnipegskeptics.com slash skepticamp. Today, we are talking about UFOs. We've dipped our toes in these waters before. Uh, last year... Jim, they come from space, not from water. <laughs> but the subject has more than enough ground to cover for its own episode. Indeed, its own podcast. I want to kick things off with a press release. Uh, I, I've tried to stack this episode with CanCon, so here we go. <laughs> Quoting from the Newswire. The first Canadian national inquiry into UFOs. The X-Files are about to be released, and now UFO disclosure is closer than ever. Seven internationally renowned experts will be witnesses for the ET disclosure hearing. Former Deputy Prime Minister, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, remains the highest-ranking former government official to reveal UFOs are real. He will be the lead witness at the National Inquiry. Other witnesses to testify are alien abductee Travis Walton, research author Richard M. Dolan, Nick Pope, former UK Ministry of Defense official, nuclear physicist Stanton T. Friedman, 
FOIA expert Grant Cameron, and Washington, D.C. Congressional Registered UFO Lobbyist Stephen G. Bassett. Oh <laughs> Lobbying on behalf of the aliens? <laughs> I hope he has long floppy ears like a Bassett hound. <laughs> Walton's making the rounds. He was just in the Ozarks. Government documents will be presented attesting to Canadian military and NORAD involvement in the tracking of and chasing UFOs. Mm, I thought NORAD put the was... Of in the wrong place. I thought NORAD was for tracking Santa. <laughs> So I, I'm reading this press release and I'm thinking, wow, this is impressive. A government inquiry into UFOs? June 2016? How did I not hear about this until now? Hold on a second. On a Saturday, June 25th at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the world's attention will be on Brantford, Ontario, Canada, where the first ever Canadian inquiry into UFOs and extraterrestrials will be held. Seven internationally renowned experts will be witnesses for the ET disclosure hearing being held at the Best Western Plus Brant Park Inn in Brantford. <laughs> so, uh, that's a, that's just a UFO convention. It's near <laughs> my brother's house. <laughs> We've sent more than 300 invitations out to journalists and academics throughout North America, inviting them to become a panelist, said Brantford author Bob Mitchell, who is totally not just begging to be taken seriously. <laughs> wow. Later on in the show, I'm going to talk about uh, government investigations into UFOs. I was doing a search for, for, some, for some Canadian stuff, and I, <laughs> I stumbled across this, and uh, this press release came up in my research because it was masquerading as a, <laughs> as a uh, government inquiry. Well, we know how much the Canadian government does with its inquiries. Oh, uh, yeah. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Way to be a downer, Lauren. Well, let's, uh, let's stop talking about important things and get back to UFOs. <laughs> so what is a UFO? As our listeners are probably aware, UFO stands for Self-Contained Underwater Breathing Apparatus. <laughs> uh, unidentified Flying Object. Those who study UFOs and related phenomena are often called UFOlogists. Uh, ufologists? I, ufologists, yeah. I, yeah. I, I assume they dropped the second O because they wanted to avoid the whole zoologist-zoologist controversy. Uh, anyway, they're typically dismissed as cranks by the larger scientific community, uh, but within the ufologist subculture, they've developed systems for classifying both UFOs themselves and their interactions with observers. So uh, before we get into talking about some specific UFO sighting incidents, some of the more famous incidents, let's go over quickly some of the types of UFOs that we might hear about. UFOs come in many shapes and sizes, uh, and it's important to point out that witnesses are unreliable in this regard, often having trouble discerning the shape and size of an unfamiliar object at a distance. When we just kind of see something out of the corner of our eye, our, our brains are natural pattern-seeking, pattern-matching machines. It's so always a kitty. Yeah, it's, it's always a kitty. A kitty. <laughs> always a kitty. <laughs> uh, many sightings, however, fall into one of these categories. Black triangles, which are fairly self-descriptive. They're huge black triangles with uh, colored lights at the corners, most often seen at night, especially in the X-Files. amazing uh, how, you know, any three things in the sky can make a triangle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right? And any three points of light that are moving in any relationship to each other, not together, can be seen as a triangle rotating, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, there are four lights. God damn it. Uh... <laughs> Often they are pictured with one light in the middle. Uh, so uh, another one we see are green fireballs, and by we see I mean they... people other than me see. <laughs> uh, 
We also have ghost rockets, which look kind of like meteors, and which historically have been sighted uh, predominantly during the peak of the annual Perseid meteor shower, uh, coincidentally enough. Shocking. <laughs> but they're not really meteors. <laughs> and the cover. Yeah, exactly. It's the cover. And of course, uh, we have the flying saucers, which I probably don't have to describe. The origin of the term flying saucer, however, has an interesting wrinkle. It gained popularity following a sighting by Kenneth Arnold in 1947, uh, just before the Roswell incident. Arnold was interviewed by Bill Baquette of the East Oregonian newspaper, where he reportedly described the objects he'd seen as saucer or disc-shaped. Three years later, however, in an interview with Edward R. Murrow, Arnold claimed that he'd been misquoted by Baquette, and that when he'd said saucer, he was referring more to the way the objects moved than their shape. He said that they rippled as they moved, and that their flight was erratic. Quote, Like a saucer if you skip it across the water. And there are actually uh, surviving radio recordings from 1947 in which Arnold describes the objects. The whole uh, observation of these particular ships didn't last more than about two and a half minutes, and I could see them only plainly when uh, they seemed to tip their wing or whatever it was, and the sun flashed on them. They looked something like uh, a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. From these interviews, it sounds like Arnold was describing something shaped more like a crescent moon, though with at least one protrusion from the back. Kind of like a batleth, now that I think about it. (laughs) In the 1970s, in an attempt to bring some manner of scientific rigor to the field of ufology, J. Allen Hynek proposed a system by which UFO sightings themselves, or close encounters, ought to be classified. His Hynek scale will probably ring a bell to any fans of Steven Spielberg in the audience. So we have a close encounter of the first kind, which occurs when a UFO is sighted from a close range, that is, uh, closer than 500 feet away and where considerable detail is visible. Now, uh, keep in mind that, as we'll hammer home probably again and again, when you're making a sighting at night and the sighting is of lights moving, it is essentially impossible to tell how far away they are. A close encounter of the second kind occurs when the UFO sighting is associated with other physical effects, such as paralysis or discomfort in the observer, electrical interference, or other physical signs, such as scorch marks, radioactive traces, or uh, terrifying black oil pouring out of the observer's eyes and mouth. And finally, a close encounter of the third kind, well, I'll just quote Heineck here. To be frank, I would gladly omit this part if I could without offense to scientific integrity. Close encounters of the third kind, those in which the presence of animated creatures is reported. I say animated, rather than animate, to keep open the possibility of robots, or something other than flesh and blood. These creatures have been variously termed occupants, humanoids, UFO knots, or even UFO sapiens. (laughs) UFO sapiens? Which one brings work for Richard Dreyfus? Despite Hynek's protestations due to uh, what he perceived as a lack of methodological rigor, some ufologists have extended Hynek's scale further to include close encounters of the fourth kind, abduction, close encounters of the fifth kind, direct communication, often telepathic in nature, close encounters of the sixth kind, 
death as a result of a UFO sighting. And finally, close encounters of the seventh kind, the closest possible encounters. You know what I'm talking about. I've always wanted to make love with an alien. Creation of a human-alien hybrid. God, I've already used every good drop I want to use in this episode. <laughs> it's almost like we've talked about this stuff before. Uh, but I'm just going to drop in that alien that wants to have sex with Commander Riker again here. Never get enough of that. Nope. <laughs> She's played by B.B. Newworth. It's Lilith Sternin. It's great. <laughs> Why don't we talk about some of the more famous UFO sightings, shall we? So I'm going to hand this over to Lauren, who's going to talk about Roswell. The Ur UFO. <laughs> So picture it, Chavez County, New Mexico, late June or early July, 1947. The United States Air Force was conducting a project so secret that even the local base wasn't made privy to the information. So, when part of the project fails, and all that the government will offer to the public is that it was a weather balloon, anyone could tell you that the public reaction would be... Anyone? Skeptical? The public reaction was nothing. <laughs> what? <laughs> As historian Robert Goldberg writes, the story died the next day. People believed that it was a weather balloon. Yeah, they said, oh, that sounds legit. How trusting were these citizens of southwestern New Mexico? How could they blindly believe their own government? <laughs> Didn't they realize they were being led like sheep? When would they wake up? You know, th this reminds me of the Boy. whole uh, War of the Worlds thing, where everybody <laughs> thinks that like the broadcast of uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds production, which, you know, I've listened to, it's okay. You know, Meh. it's not bad. Not his best work. No. It's no vegetable commercial. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. So from the 1970s onward, remember the incident happened in 47. So we're talking almost 30 years later. 30 years later. Okay. Intrepid ufologists like Stanton Friedman, William Moore, Carl Flock, and the team of Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt began interviewing hundreds of local people who claimed to have a connection with the incident, and were finally willing to tell what they had seen and what the government had covered up. The conclusions of the interviews and the results from the Freedom of Information Act requests was as follows. At least one alien spacecraft had crashed near Roswell, alien bodies had been recovered, and a government cover-up of the incident had taken place. Of course. Of course. Duh. Of course. What else could it possibly be? Leaked government documents from Majestic 12 surfaced in 1984 that proved that President Harry Truman had created Majestic 12 as a commission for the exploration and cover-up of alien craft. It proved it. So finally the truth was coming out. The government would have to tell its people of the information all about the alien contact that had been covered up for decades. This hush-hush conspiracy would end with a satisfying bang of discovery and not the whimper of low-budget alien autopsy videos. This would be super exciting. Well, if any of it was true. Okay, well, some of it is true. Something crashed in the New Mexico desert. A ranch foreman named William Brazel found it. The official government word was that it was a weather balloon. There was little to no press follow-up or a local panic. The rest, of course, was made up from whole cloth. One of the things that I find interesting about this is that there actually was a government cover-up <laughs> and that the weather balloon was a cover story. Yeah. <laughs> Just not for aliens. <laughs> So firstly, the discovery was made by William Brazel. It happened much closer to Corona, New Mexico, than to Roswell. This has bugged me for a while. <laughs> yes, Roswell was, and is, the county seat. And the nearby military base was called the Roswell Army Airfield, but the incident happened 120 kilometers away from Roswell. Driving American freeway speeds, today of course, not in 47, that's an hour away. Corona is less than 50 kilometers away. 
It's like calling the Falcon Lake incident the Winnipeg thing. <laughs> they could have called it the Corona incident. They could have gotten some beer tie-ins or something. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, that merchandising opportunity. Yeah, right? might have to do with something that Roswell was the county seat and Corona has 165 residents as of the last census. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Like, this sort of stuff happens in history all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you hear about Louis Sixteenth and his flight to Varennes when he was yeah. trying to escape. He wasn't going to Varennes. That just happens to be where he was caught. Yeah. <laughs> That's where, where they're like, hey, isn't that, isn't that King Louis? Look at that wig. <laughs> he was going to Austria. <laughs> but no, it's the flight to Varennes. So all this glory poaching aside, thanks to the conspiracies kicked up by Friedman and his ilk, the U.S. government launched an investigation in the early 90s. Their conclusions included that it wasn't a weather balloon that crashed. It was part of Project Mogul a top-secret Cold War nuclear detection program. Project Mogul ran from early 1947 through 1949. The plan, conceived by Maurice Ewing, was actually pretty cool. Ewing was a geophysicist who worked mainly with deep-sea projects, including the SOFAR, or Deep Sound Channel. The Deep Sound Channel is a horizontal layer of water in the ocean at which depth the speed of sound is at its minimum. The SOFAR channel acts as a waveguide for sound, and low-frequency sound waves within the channel can travel thousands of miles before dissipating. So you can hear things a long, far away away in this horizontal part of the ocean. And it's in the SOFAR channel that the bloop was... Yes. So Ewing theorized that a similar channel would be found in the upper atmosphere, and Project Mogul was devised to detect long-distance sound waves generated by Soviet nuclear testing. The thing about these sound channels is that they are relatively narrow. The sound recording equipment has to maintain constant altitude and remain aligned for a long period of time. Automated pressure sensors and ballast dumping systems were designed to deal with this problem, so things wouldn't get out of alignment. The balloons were also made of a polyethylene plastic, which was much better at retaining helium and maintaining altitude than standard weather balloons. So we've got some fancy new gizmos and some weird plastic we haven't seen before. The Project Mogul contraptions were also enormous and held up radar reflectors that looked like shiny metal discs. (laughs) So let's recap. We've got a new plastic polymer balloon. It's the size of a small car. A bunch of sensors and detection gear. A shiny metal disc. Lightweight construction materials, because it was in the air. And now let's compare that to what William Brazel found in the desert, as told by the Roswell Daily Record for the July 9, 1947 story. And I quote, Brazel said that he did not see it fall from the sky and did not see it before it was torn up, so he did not know the size or shape it might have been, but he thought it might have been as large as a tabletop. The balloon which held it up, if that is how it worked, must have been about 12 feet long, he felt, measuring the distance by the size of the room in which he sat. The rubber was smoke-gray in color and scattered over an area about 200 yards in diameter. When the debris was gathered up, the tinfoil, paper, tape, and sticks made a bundle about 18 or 20 inches long and about 5 inches thick. In all, he estimated, the entire lot would have weighed maybe five pounds. There was no sign of any metal in the area, which might have been used for an engine, and no sign of any propellers of any kind, although at least one paper fin had been glued onto some of the (laughs) tinfoil. I love the idea that people thought this was an interstellar spacecraft. (laughs) (laughs) There were no words to be found anywhere on the instrument. There were letters on some of the parts. Considerable scotch tape and some tape with flowers printed upon it had been used in the construction. Flower tape, yeah! What? They used washi tape. 1947 washi tape. So no strings or wire to be found, but there were some eyelets in the paper to indicate that some sort of attachment may have been used. Like I said before, the fur died quickly in 1947. The person who found the debris didn't say anything about it being a flying saucer or any sort of alien craft. 
the Air Force swooped in, whisked away the remains, and while pulling on its collar like a ham-fisted movie villain, muttered something about weather balloons and sneaked out the back door before the commies could find out. (laughs) On July 8, the Roswell Air Army Field released a statement that it had found a flying disc. Again, I quote, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such a time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield, and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. So how the heck did this nearly forgotten, nothing incident out in the New Mexico desert become synonymous with UFO sightings? Enter Stanton Friedman. Ooh, he was at the inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stanton Friedman used to be a nuclear physicist. In the 1950s through the 1970s, he worked for companies like GE and GM and several other companies that didn't start with G. <laughs> Developing programs like nuclear-assisted aircraft and rockets. In 1970, he left full-time work to devote himself to the study of UFOs. I really want to know what happened with that decision-making process. <laughs> Although, although, like, 40 years later, he still gets top billing at these UFO conferences as nuclear physicist Stanton. Yeah. I love this quote from his Wikipedia article. Friedman had consistently favored use of the term flying saucer in his work, saying, Flying saucers are, by definition, unidentified flying objects, but very few unidentified flying objects are flying saucers. I'm interested in the latter, not the former. Friedman used to refer to himself as the flying saucer physicist because of his degrees in nuclear physics and work on nuclear projects. In 1978, Friedman became the first civilian investigator at Roswell and ignited the whole controversy. So remember, this is 30 years later. 31 years later, he became the first civilian investigator. Friedman interviewed Jesse Marcel, who is the only known person to have accompanied the debris, to Fort Worth, Texas. His research was used for the 1980 book The Roswell Incident by Charles Berlitz and William Moore, who had previously written about the Bermuda Triangle and Atlantis. Very reputable incidents. <laughs> yeah. They didn't even quote Friedman. Like, they didn't cite him for his work. Oh, jeez. But their version, purportedly taken from 90 different interviews, became the standard story for a decade. Yeah, you you really see stellar scholarship in all of this. Uh, you, we we'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that, too. But, stellar scholarship? <laughs> Go away. I'll, I'll see myself out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, according to the book by Berlitz and Moore, an alien craft was flying over the New Mexico desert, observing U.S. nuclear weapon activity, but crashed after being hit by lightning, killing the aliens on board, and a government cover-up duly followed. That's the basic Roswell tale that most people know. Say, alien craft crashed, we covered it up. Right. Their account also included uh, talk of government intimidation of witnesses and some photo tampering, all in the name of keeping the public in the dark about what really went on. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you will, look right here. 1991 brought Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt's book, UFO Crash at Roswell. Somehow, they had found over 100 more witnesses. Well, they did have another decade, so okay. (laughs) (laughs) These new witnesses brought even more information like a 400-foot gouge in the ground, and the entire ranch being cordoned off to witnesses. There was a second crash site, which was overrun by civilians before the army could secure the scene. I think this is the narrative followed in the Agent J origin story in Men in Black? 
He was just trying to bring flowers home to his girl. So Randall and Schmidt also gave rise to the Glenn Dennis narrative. Dennis was produced as a supposedly important witness in 1989 after calling the hotline when an episode of Unsolved Mysteries featured the Roswell incident. His descriptions of Roswell alien autopsies were the first account that said there were alien corpses at the Roswell Army Air Base. Yep, that's where the autopsies come in, 42 years after the incident, on a television hotline. Yeah, and, and you see this sort of stuff with lots of conspiracy theories, right? You get witnesses, like, appearing decades after mm-hmm. and decades after, and your high-quality witnesses, you're going to hear from them right away. Testimony that comes so late, even if it is... Even if we're talking about a real witness who actually did witness something, the intervening years will have rendered that testimony essentially worthless. Yeah. Because human memory is so fallible. Yeah. And because human memory is so fallible, you you get people to tell stories about even important events, flashbulb memories, like where they were on 9-11, for example. If you take their story down today and you compare it to a recording of their story from that time, you will get wildly different stories. And there have been some interesting studies documenting this effect. We could do a whole show about that. So with the publication of Randall and Schmidt, we've now got the book wars about Roswell. Friedman hit back with Crash at Corona in 1992. See, someone else gives credit to the actual crash site. Well, those aliens shouldn't have been drinking. (laughs) (laughs) So even more witnesses brought his research to conclude that there were two, two saucers and eight aliens, two of whom survived and were taken into government custody. So after Friedman's book, they, they couldn't be outdone. So Randall and Schmidt brought out 1994's The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. <laughs> just like, we're just yeah. constantly one-upping each yeah. other. <laughs> Crash at Corona, the truth about it, UFO! So they bring Eisenhower into the mix, claiming that he was interested and had viewed the alien bodies. Yeah, like, I mean, if, if that had actually happened, of course he... <laughs> nah, I'll, I'll pass. I don't, it's I in New Mexico, know. what? Oh, I don't want to travel to New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> To add to the fire, in 1995, footage was released that was purported to be film of the actual alien autopsies shot by a military official. Does anyone else remember this? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was huge. Alien autopsy this. It was aired on Fox, right? Yeah, it was so hyped. Everywhere you turn, someone was advertising alien autopsies and some grainy still frames, wherever. Not surprisingly, as Jem said, Fox aired the footage several times, getting millions of viewers. A decade later, the distributor admitted the footage was fake, but it was a reproduction of the actual footage, <laughs> which was lost somewhere between 47 and 95. Whoopsie! <laughs> I had to recreate it because I knew it. Yeah. Trust me, guys. Trust me. Yeah. I got this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all of these competing accounts created a schism in the UFO world. So MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. And Ooh, we know him from the... The ones we were watching in the treehouse. Unsealed Conspiracy Files. Yes, Yes, MUFON was in the Unsealed Mm -hmm. Conspiracy Files. So that's one conference. And CFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, which is the other. So they have held several joint conferences, MUFON and CFOS. They were trying to hammer out which account is correct. They've apparently agreed to disagree as if it were the UFO world's transubstantiation. Yeah, like, I, I was going to say, like, this, this sounds like they're deciding on, on church canon yeah. here. So, but in fact, Don Schmidt heightens that comparison, saying, we know Jesus Christ was crucified, we just don't know where. <laughs> the Roswell incident has been thoroughly debunked. A plausible explanation has been admitted by the U.S. government, and many of the hundreds of witnesses have been shown to be either making things up or have been made up themselves. 
Interest was only dredged up due in part to paranoia about the government. According to anthropologists Susan Harding and Kathleen Stewart, the Roswell story was the prime example of how a discourse moved from the fringes to the mainstream, according to the prevailing zeitgeist. It was just public preoccupation in the 1980s with conspiracy, cover-up, and repression, aligned well with the Roswell narratives as told in the sensational books which were being published. Joe Nickel and his co-author James Magaha identified a myth-making process which they called the Roswellian syndrome. They give a myth five distinct stages of development. There's the incident, there is the debunking, there is the submergence, so it goes underground again, yep. there is the mythologizing, and the re-emergence and media bandwagon effect. Pretty much Roswell in a nutshell. Yeah. So we are still receiving new reports up until this year. Last month, so June 2017, saw the release of a 1999 interview with a local sheriff who claimed to have seen bodies being loaded into trucks. A 1997 paper released by the U.S. military does state that they were using test dummies to test high-altitude parachutes in the same area where Project Mogul was being conducted. Fifty years and some persuasive media could certainly turn that into the ideas of little green men. Oh, yeah. Roswell has been described as the world's most famous, most exhaustively investigated, and most thoroughly debunked UFO claim. I'm happy to leave it there. We can say that the incident has been good for the city of Roswell. Each year, thousands of people visit the city to see the alien-themed museums, stores, and restaurant. There's even a McDonald's shaped like a flying saucer. (laughs) Tiny Corona, though, it just keeps chugging along. UFOs often are great for local business. That's that's one thing I'll give them. Um, the uh, small Texas town of Marfa actually yes. has has kind of restructured its economy around the Marfa lights, uh, which I wanted to spend some time talking about, but. We're, we're running a little short on time. The, the Marfa lights uh, are f- floating orbs that frequently appear on the plains in the distance just outside the town of Marfa in Texas. But instead of spending time talking about those, I'll just direct our listeners to check out episode three of Vice's new podcast, Science Solved It, for the science behind these particular UFOs. It's a fascinating story, and spoiler, it turns out they're not aliens. Damn it, Jim. Every time. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about Falcon Lake, some more CanCon, right, Ashlyn? So I was super excited to talk about this one because it's our hometown story. I had never heard of it before the 50th anniversary, which was uh, in May of this year. And uh, Lauren was talking about it, and then I went and found the article and read the whole thing and then said to Jem, I didn't want to talk about this soon. And he was like, great, our next episode is on UFOs. (laughs) (laughs) So... Stephen Michalik was prospecting near Falcon Lake, Manitoba on Maylong weekend in 1967 when his life was forever changed by what he witnessed. Okay, so there was this guy, and he was an industrial mechanic at a cement company. He was born in Poland and then served in the U.S. Army and then finally moved to Canada with his family, and he had been working for Inland Cement for about six years, uh, first in Saskatchewan and then in Winnipeg. Everyone at the company reportedly considered him a good, reliable guy and employee. He was also an amateur geologist and prospector. He had been out searching for quartz and silver the previous year, but had not yet returned this year due to poor weather. Why he then decided May Long Weekend was a good time to go, I don't know. Although he had only been living in Winnipeg for two years at that point, so it's possible he didn't know any better. It always rains. Always. 
So he punched out early on Friday afternoon and headed home to his wife and son, who made him lunch for the following day and drove him to the bus stop. The lunch contained sausages, buns, oranges, and cheese. Uh, The fact that there was a lunch was widely reported, but the contents of the lunch were only discussed in one police report, which I read. These details are not important, but it does sound delicious. (laughs) (laughs) He had a Lunchable. (laughs) Like, every article was like, he ate lunch. But then in in the police report, there was like, well, what was in the lunch? And he, like, described the lunch in great detail, and so I decided to include that. (laughs) Steve took the bus out to Valken Lake, uh, checked into the motel somewhere between 9.15 and 9.30, read his prospecting books for a bit, and then went to the hotel bar. He says he got a coffee. The bartender said he had about five beers. (laughs) The police report mentions a hamburger. You decide who to believe. (laughs) After consuming his beverages and or burger, Steve went to bed and got up bright and early to venture into the bush. He wandered about for quite some time, measuring things and hacking up some rocks, probably. Uh, About 11 a.m., he upset a herd of geese by getting too close. But they calmed down while he ate his lunch. Geese are assholes. And he... Story checks out so So far. So we're done with the lunch? (laughs) (laughs) This is the lunch that it was packed? Yes. Okay. So he described in great detail how the geese got very upset when he got near, but then they calmed down as geese do. He was like, first, the the female geese noticed me and they made quite a racket, and then the gander came over and took a look. (laughs) Yeah. But then, you know, I just kept working and they calmed down and it was fine. This was like a really drawn out explanation in the police report. Was such a dumb episode. <laughs> just after he finished lunch, the geese started making a racket again. Steve looked up into the air and beheld two flying objects, which were cigar shaped. And the rest of his story goes something like this. One descended, landing on a flat section of rock and taking on more of a disc shape. The other remained in the air for a few minutes before flying off. Believing it to be a secret U.S. military experimental craft, he sat back and sketched it over the next half hour. Then he decided to approach, later recalling the warm air and smell of sulfur as he got closer, as well as a whirring sound of motors and a hissing of air. Other than this, he said, the craft made very little noise and he heard nothing upon landing or takeoff. Familiar with jet engines, the police asked him to compare, and he said it was about a hundred times quieter and three, four, five, six times faster, although that was harder for him to estimate. There was a hatch open on the side, with bright lights inside, and he said he heard voices muffled by the sounds from the craft. He called out, offering mechanical help to the Yankee boys if they needed it. Promising he wouldn't sell their secrets for cash. (laughs) The voices went quiet, Oh boy! (laughs) but they did not answer. So uh, Steve tried in his native Polish, then in French, German, and Italian. And uh, at this point in the police reports, the police are like, you know a lot of languages, huh? (laughs) And he was like, oh, I get by, I get by. (laughs) So it seemed like he knew like a few words of each. Like he would say, do you speak German? Do you speak Italian? And he was trying to figure out how he could communicate. Uh, So after the voices stopped, uh, they never replied to him. He claims he went closer and noted the smooth metal of the ship with no seams. And this impressed him being, you know, a mechanical engineer. Very cool, no seams, lots of metal. He then looked into the bright doorway, pulling on the welding goggles he used to protect his eyes while chipping at rocks during prospecting. Inside, Stephen said he saw light beams and panels of various colored flashing lights. Quote, like a computer. But could not see anyone or any living thing. When he stepped away, three panels slid across the door opening and sealed it like a camera shutter. He reached out to touch the craft, which he said melted the fingertips of the glove he was wearing and hurt his hand. The craft then began to turn counterclockwise, and Stephen says he noticed a panel that contained a grid of holes. Shortly afterward, he was struck in the chest by a blast of air or gas that pushed him backward and set his shirt and cap ablaze. 
He ripped away the burning garments, shredding his shirt in the process and leaving it on the ground as the craft lifted off and flew away. And there's lots of descriptions of like it changing colors variously from like red to orange and then back to gray and then silver. Uh, but they were all very confusing. Uh, so he was disoriented and nauseous at this point. So he stumbled through the forest, vomiting for several minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> he wasn't having a good time. Oh boy, that lunch did not sit well. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have left the sausages out for that long. <laughs> he eventually made his way back to his motel room in Falcon Lake and then caught a bus back to Winnipeg. But reports are varied as to how exactly that went. <laughs> so he says he walked back to the motel and on the way encountered a Mountie who either ignored him or listened to his story and then drove off. There is, however, quite a detailed report from the officer in question that offers a different take on the matter. <laughs> okay. So in this report, the officer sees Steve by the side of the road and then Steve flags him down. So he like drove past him and then Steve waves his arm and goes, oh God, oh God. Um, <laughs> Vomiting profusely. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, nice. So the officer asks what's wrong. He turns around and comes back for him. And Steve hands over his ID and his burned hat, but won't let the officer get anywhere near him to look at his shirt. He says, like, stay away from me. I might be radioactive. So he thinks at this point that he is a danger to others because he might be so radioactive. I don't know what gave him this impression. He doesn't mention. The officer notes that it looks as though he had taken a black substance, possibly wood ash, and rubbed it on his shirt. He also noted that while the back of the cap was definitely burnt, the back of Steve's head was not. Steve wouldn't answer any direct questions about these things. I actually think the back of the head thing is really interesting because his forehead was burnt, according to other reports from the hospital, and they later found out he was wearing his cap backwards so he could have the welding goggles on at the same time. So that kind of actually does make sense, but I like that you can see that the officer was skeptical of his claims, but like he clearly didn't make this up afterwards because like that detail would have already been figured out. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Uh, there's also the great line. Though I could not smell liquor on him, his appearance was not dissimilar to that of a person who has overindulged. <laughs> <laughs> so, like at this point, I'm thinking this guy drank a lot and fell into his campfire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then there were other reports from people who said that he looked hungover, but nobody who was questioned said that he smelled of liquor or anything mm. like that. And there were also, like, they went to the different stores in town and tried to see if, uh, if anybody remembered selling him liquor. And the only person who remembered him drinking anything was that bartender. And yeah. even the bartender was like, like, he clearly was not drunk. And that was the night before. Yeah. So the report indicates that the officer offered to drive him back to town or to get medical attention, but Steve refused. Although he later showed up at the police office asking about the nearest doctor and was advised to go to either Kenora or Steinbeck. He called a local newspaper and asked for a ride home, but no publicity. He didn't want publicity. He just wanted the newspaper to give him a ride home. Um, <laughs> apparently this ride was not forthcoming since at this point Steve caught the bus back to Winnipeg. And his son took him to the Misericordia Urgent Care. And I've been there, and reporting on this story is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hearing all I these words. I feel like I spent yeah. half my childhood in that urgent yeah. care. <laughs> so the RCMP visited Steve at his home several times in the next week while he recovered. They looked into all kinds of places and talked to all kinds of people, and they determined that no one really had any doubts about his mental health or stability. There was no reason to think that he, you know, routinely made stuff up or whatever. The interviews that police conducted at his home included detailed descriptions of the encounter, including the fact that the craft had definitely landed and taken off in the direction of 225 degrees south-southwest, as he had taken a compass reading, and he was very certain about that. So the direction that the craft came in and landed was the same, and he was really sure that it was 225 degrees. 
After about a week's recovery, while Steve couldn't keep food down and lost about 20 pounds, there were a few attempts to get him to bring them back to the landing site, so after he had recovered, uh, at least two of which were unsuccessful. He apparently sort of wandered aimlessly through the forest, not making much effort to find the area, seeming very confused. And then investigators also searched by air, trying to find a site that matched his description. So like there was an opening in the south and it was about this big, yada yada. Uh, and they weren't able to find anything that looked promising. The police did make sure to make it clear to Steve that if he was to find the site, he was to alert them immediately and do not remove any evidence. They, they make it sound like they were very clear with him on this point. Guess what happens? <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact that Michaelic seemed very concerned that no one find out where the exact spot was in an attempt to hide where he had been prospecting, he took up with a man by the name of Hart, who was from a UFO investigation group, and went out searching for the site with him. Was he trespassing? Is that why he doesn't want people to know? No, he like... just, he thought he had a good spot that was going to have, like, mm, a really good, okay. um, like, ore. Right. And he did apparently have, like, a legit claim to it. While they were searching the site, they found, like, his claim markers or whatever. Mm -hmm. He just didn't want, like, the public to know. Right. Because then they would swarm there and whatever. That seemed to be his chief concern anyway. Sure. Steve did eventually find the site again, either on his own or with the help of Hart. Uh, he was able to, against the orders of police, recover his measuring tape, the remains of his burned shirt, and a couple of other items, including some soil samples that he took, which were sent away for testing for radioactivity. They returned positive enough that an investigator was sent out to see if the area was a danger to the public. Hmm. So these were, like, highly radioactive. He also apparently did a really good job picking up the remains of that shirt, because when, uh, subsequently they went back with the police, they, he showed him, like, this is the exact spot where I ripped my shirt off, and they could not find a single fragment of it to test themselves. So, that seems suspicious. Just saying. At the site itself, they found only a slight elevation in radiation levels in one of the cracks in the rock and nothing in the surrounding area. So there was like one crack in the whole 15 meter long. It was clearly an area where there was no more moss, like the moss had either been burned away or uh, one of the investigators said, like, there's no evidence that it was swept away, but we obviously can't be sure. <laughs> so... Yeah. There was like a definite circle where it was gone and there was no elevated radiation anywhere around it except for in this one crack. It was noted by the expert that they brought in to make sure the area was not a danger to the public that the type of radioactivity was the sort that many industrially available products could produce. And indeed, uh, the expert thought it might contain traces of radium-laced paint. Uh. Uh, the next paragraph I took wholesale from a site called The Iron Skeptic because it entertained me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that UFO enthusiasts like to harp on is the fact that several times Michaelic was shown to have slightly higher than normal radiation levels, as though he'd been irradiated by whatever the hot exhaust gas was. What they don't ever mention is that the investigator eventually determined that his watch had the same level of radiation. Back then, watch faces were painted with a paint containing radium to make them glow faintly in the dark and be easier to read. So one of two things immediately leaps to mind. The investigator accidentally skewed the results by holding his watch too close to the Geiger counter, or that a suitably clever man could have made himself slightly radioactive through the use of a similar substance. Sure, it's possible that he was radioactive because of his spaceship encounter, but I ask you, which is more likely? Cunning man can cock strange tail, doofus skews radiation test results, or spacemen travel a gazillion miles <laughs> through space just to blow-dry a geologist? <laughs> Blow-drying the geologist wasn't the point, it was just <laughs> it was a, a, side a, a side effect. Side effect. Yeah. <laughs> All the hairdressers and telephone sanitizers. Are yeah, yeah, it was Arc B. <laughs> you mean you've got a hold full of frozen hairdressers? Oh, yes, millions of them. Another thing that some people point out about this story is that 
Uh, there doesn't seem to be a reason for him to have made up the story. He didn't get particularly famous, he didn't make any money off of it, but he sure tried. So <laughs> He just wanted a ride home, Ashlyn. He didn't want publicity. <laughs> yeah, so he wrote a book about it, which did not sell. Uh, apparently the publishers probably lost money on it. And uh, one site I read, I couldn't find any other conf- confirmation about it, but said that uh, Michaelic was really mad that the book didn't sell. There was some evidence that he tried to make money off of it and just kind of failed. There was some other evidence, like little pieces of sterling silver metal that were like a, had a little bit of sand on them that he claimed to have found under several inches of dirt afterwards that were kind of radioactive. But he was a metal guy. He knew how to work with metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though he apparently had many, many samples, he would only let them see this one. <laughs> so there are some things about that. Um, oh, once they also found the site, they determined that the opening in the clearing like was not where he said it was. The space was much smaller, and so that's why they couldn't find it from the air. And then when they asked him to point out what direction the thing came in and landed off, it was like 65 degrees, not 225 degrees, like totally, totally different. And like that was the thing he had seemed most sure about. So that mm-hmm. was a, a weird discrepancy. So the RCMP investigation eventually concluded that they didn't really know what had happened, but there were some large inconsistencies with Steve's story, uh, <laughs> starting with whether he had had any alcohol the night before. He just flatly denied that he had, and that doesn't really make any sense because it is not that big a deal. Like, the bartender was very clearly like, yes, this is the guy, th- this guy you brought me. He-, he had several bottles of beer and then went back to his room. You know, no, I definitely only had coffee. You can kind of see somebody, like, worried that the RCMP are trying to poke holes in his testimony, just yeah. kind of overcorrecting. Sure. Or worried but... that his mother or wife would... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also the direction of the flight, the fact that he removed all of the evidence, uh, like his tape measure and everything else that he found that he was definitely not supposed to remove, and he claims afterward, well, you never told me not to take it. Mm, I don't think so. And the fact that he apparently didn't want publicity, but kept taking up with these other random strangers. He kept trying to get rides from the news <laughs> the newspapers. Yeah. The free press just doesn't want to pick me up. <laughs> it was the uh, either the Winnipeg or the Manitoba Tribune. So uh, Steve's son, Stan, has recently come out with a book to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the incident. He maintains that his dad's story was never shown to have any flaws and that his dad also never claimed it was aliens. He says that if his dad pulled it off as a hoax, he was a genius. So I guess the the big thing for a lot of ufologists is that the the burns on Steve's chest. So he ended up with sort of this grid-like pattern. The pictures are cool. Yeah, yeah. You can look up the pictures in any article about this. They apparently would fade and then come back and fade and then come back. And one of the um, doctors said it kind of looked like a sunburn. And then, I mean, I don't know, the, I find the the original officer's description of it looked like he had taken some ash and rubbed it onto his shirt very interesting. He was apparently very sick for a long time after he came back, and the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on, but the main symptom seemed to be that he couldn't keep any food down. I don't know, that's not an impossible thing to... Uh, fake? fake. <laughs> I'm trying to find a nicer word for fake. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> Um, I think it's a really fascinating story, and I think it's really cool that it was, you know, somewhere I camped every weekend growing yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. I've got two takeaways from it. Okay. Pack a good lunch, and the Misericordia is a very important building. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do not take away the Misericordia Urgent Care. We yeah. need it for the alien encounters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, 
that's that's fascinating, Ashlyn. I was too enthralled by the story to come up with an appropriate segue. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's talk about one more specific UFO encounter that was widely reported before we turn our eye to the subject more broadly. You all may remember that the impetus for this episode was the fact that I wanted to talk about Chariots of the Gods again. Uh, <laughs> because we cut you off last time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 50 minutes or whatever was, was long enough for that segment. But in Chariots of the Gods, Von Daniken relates several stories in an attempt to bolster his case that extraterrestrials have been visiting Earth for thousands of years. I tried to track down several of these UFO sightings that he mentions and uh, had a fair amount of difficulty with a few of them because he does not provide a lot of detail. But uh, some of them were fairly well documented, and one even has a Canadian connection. So uh, You're really slamming it in here this episode. Did the CRTC <laughs> contact you? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're on notice. So, so uh, quoting Von Daniken here. On November 23, 1953, an unidentified flying object was picked up on the radar screen of the Kinross Air Base in Michigan. Flight Lieutenant R. Wilson, who happened to be on a training flight in an F-86 jet aircraft, was given permission to chase the thing. The radar crew watched Wilson pursuing the unidentified object for 160 miles. Suddenly, both flying bodies merged with one another on the radar screen. Radio calls to Wilson were unanswered. During the next few days, the region in which the inexplicable event took place was combed for wreckage by search troops, and nearby Lake Superior was examined for traces of oil. They found nothing. There was absolutely no trace of Flight Lieutenant Wilson and his machine. Dun dun dun! So, uh, Von Daniken's telling of this story misses a few key details and gets, <laughs> gets a few things completely wrong. Uh, first of all, and uh, probably most important, Robert Wilson never went missing. <laughs> somewhat important. So, Second Lieutenant Wilson was actually the radar operator on the ground who was tracking the blip on behalf of the pilot. The pilot was Lieutenant Felix Monkla. It's fairly representative of Von Daniken's commitment to good scholarship, I think, that he can't even figure out which one of these lieutenants was uh, supposedly abducted. It's true that neither Monkla nor his aircraft were ever found, but the searches conducted by both the U.S. Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force were hampered by bad weather. Monkla disappeared over Lake Superior, which is on the U.S.-Canada border, and if Monkla crashed into the lake, as seems likely, identification and recovery of the wreckage would be very difficult, especially given the inclement weather at the time. I grew up on Superior. You're not going to find anything. <laughs> yeah, th th it's not exactly a little lake. <laughs> There were some reports of aircraft parts washing up on the shore of Lake Superior some 15 years later, but these uh, reports were not confirmed. Von Daniken also fails to point out that the official Air Force Accident Investigation Report states that Monkla's F-89, yes, F-89, not F-86, as Von Daniken wrote in his book, <laughs> that Monkla's F-89 was sent to investigate not a UFO, but rather a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 Skytrain aircraft that had deviated from its flight path. The pilot of that aircraft, Gerald Fosberg, denies that he was off course, but we might expect that given Monkla is presumed dead at this point as a result of the attempted intercept, Fosberg might be reticent to admit error in this case. So, Monkla was dispatched not to investigate an alien, but to investigate 
a known aircraft that had deviated from its flight path. The USAF report also notes that Moncla was known to suffer from vertigo, which may have contributed to the crash in this case. They let a pilot with vertigo... Well, so so vertigo is actually very common in pilots of jet aircraft. Scuttlebutt around the base afterward was that he suffered from vertigo more than most, and that it was a problem for him. That was omitted from the initial report because it was hearsay, but it later came to light. So, we don't have a story of a jet fighter scrambled to intercept a UFO. We have a story of an anomalous blip, which was positively identified as a known aircraft that was off of its flight path. Moncla was already in the air, went to investigate, and appears to have crashed. The wreckage was never recovered, but the listener can decide for themselves uh, what the most plausible explanation for the story is. That's enough Chariots of the Gods for now. So, Laura, why don't you tell us about Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project? So, Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project is essentially a campaign to demand opening up of government secrets of what they know about extraterrestrials, UFO intelligence, as well as high-tech, free-energy type machines that they have been suppressing. I love when the pseudosciences overlap. It's everywhere. So that's what the Disclosure Project is. Ooh, this is... <laughs> the Can dis- you teach Jim? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the project actually stems from a another organization called CSETI, or CSETI, as mm, I like to call yeah. it, which is the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which is also founded by Stephen Greer. So this is sort of their... their lobbying uh, political arm, if you will. Stephen Greer, he's the head of a lot of these organizations. So I think we need to talk about Stephen Greer a little bit because to understand these projects, you really need to get to know Stephen Greer. So who is Stephen Greer? Well, by trade, he was a medical doctor. He received his medical training uh, about 30 years ago, I believe. And up until about 1993, 1995, he was an emergency room physician. And apparently he was highly accredited in this area. In the mid-90s, that's when he founded CSETI and developed the Disclosure Project. It was also known as Project Starlight when it first started. It changed into the Disclosure Project later. It sounds a little less fantastic. Yeah, so he left emergency medicine. He retired from being a physician to work full-time as the chairman of these organizations. Stephen Greer, he's a medical doctor, but he's not a scientist, astronomer, maybe he's an astrologer, I don't know, astronomer, uh, anything like that. However, he has been visited by a UFO. He was eight years old, he had his first encounter, and he was, uh, so to speak, hooked ever since. So he went searching for more and more evidence from there and then decided to make it his full-time job. And that's really important to know. CSETI's goals include promotion of peace and avoidance of a military state on Earth, collaborating and peaceful sharing with extraterrestrial presences that are, in fact, on Earth, facilitating mutual bilateral communication with them. They define that as a close encounter five type of interaction. That's where humans seek out the extraterrestrial attention. 
to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Either through words or visual stimuli or thought patterns and thought waves. Seek out new life and new <laughs> civilizations. <laughs> I am quitting this damn podcast. <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of the Raelians goals, right? Mm-hmm. Back on episode yes. 112, we talked about the Raelians and how they have established contact, but the aliens refuse to actually come down and, you know, give us all of our technology yeah. and... So, you're right. All of the published documents for the Disclosure Project and the C-SETI make it clear that, yes, aliens are here. The witness testimony is by far their most credible sources of evidence. They also pull out things like the Guy Hoddle FBI memo from 1950, which mentions that there was a UFO wreckage that was found. This, of course, has been debunked and by no means proof of anything. The FBI has it on FBI.gov. And of course, now, if you're into conspiracies, you're not going to trust that site, but it is most likely a second or third hand account. And it was recorded after it is not meant to be proof of anything. It was just that a report was made. And so it was filed because that was the protocol at the time. Anyway, so this type of thing is their, their proof for that. And like I said, eyewitness testimony is by far their most important source of proof. So it's just taken that, yes, extraterrestrial presence is here on Earth. Now, from what you're saying, Jem, they actually take it a little bit further than what the Raelians did. So instead of just saying the the extraterrestrials refuse to make themselves known, Stephen Greer and the people that he trains in, in searching for extraterrestrials, they can definitely encourage them to communicate, particularly through things like incredibly bright lights and thought patterns. And the extraterrestrials apparently do communicate with them, but the extraterrestrials are really more concerned about what's going on on Earth here, our warlike tendencies, and our use of things like fossil fuels that are killing our environment, where they have these great technologies that they're bringing to help us that we aren't using. So this is where the Disclosure Project comes in. One of the great things about science fiction is that it's a good vehicle for discussing societal problems. You know, you got your aliens that are one half black, one half white on the left side, and then the other one... God, that was a bad episode. And it's often used as a vehicle for for discussing societal problems in a non-threatening way. But that aspect of science fiction seems to bleed into people's interpretations of, of what they see as real life aliens. When you look at alien encounters in the Cold War era, you have stories in the popular media, but then also abductees talking about how the aliens are really concerned about nuclear annihilation and that existential threat. When the abductees themselves and society at large is really concerned about that. Nowadays, the aliens are concerned about global warming and overuse of fossil fuels and the, what we're doing to our environment. Because we're concerned about that. <laughs> of course. Well, I guess the aliens do just have our, uh, our best interests in mind. <laughs> right. But it's interesting that the aliens' concerns and the things that we need to fix to be uh, admitted into the galactic community is always the things that society at large needs to fix. Of course. And that is very apparent from all of the reading that you can do on, on any of these websites. It's, it's very much that 
And I mean, the the Disclosure Project was more so an effort in the 90s and early 2000s. That part of the website hasn't been updated too, too much, but the (laughs) CSETI part of it is current as of 2017. So that's still going. In fact, you can buy their ET Contact Tool app for $10 on the App Store. What's it called again? The ET Contact Tool. Because CSETI didn't. ET Contact Tool. Yep. First thing when you start searching ET. And you'll notice that there's a, a, a strong focus on thought patterns and concentrated energy. Stephen Greer is very interested in meditation. Very, very interested in meditation. And oh. so he brings that part of it to how you contact and communicate with extraterrestrials. And there is a fabulous, really informative article about his thoughts on this and how he has used his meditation and his consciousness in a group as well to have extraterrestrials coming to him in a journal called Yoga Journal from 1995, this issue. The article is called, If We Call Them, Will They Come? Betteridge's Law of Headlines applies. Always, always. Uh, if you want to understand more about Stephen Greer, really, please read this article. It is, it is very helpful. I, I say all of this because it's very important. If you start reading just about the Disclosure Project, to have that background on who he is and why he is and how he does things fills in a lot of the gaps. Because I was reading through the website and trying to go through the different things that they posted as position papers, which were not at all position papers. Um, <laughs> but going through that and going... I feel like I'm missing some things here, and now I understand a little bit better. The Disclosure Project comes in because we know that there are extraterrestrials here. We know that they care about us, and we know that there is, in fact, free energy, anti-gravity type technology that will save us all from fossil fuels and provide us all a better quality of life and save all this money, but it is being suppressed as is all of this evidence that the extraterrestrials exist. So the disclosure is the demand that the U.S. government start holding hearings into all this suppressed information. Okay, wait. So we're burning too many fossil fuels, and because we're burning too many fossil fuels, the aliens won't share their super awesome technology with us. But that super awesome technology is the technology that would allow us to get off of fossil fuels, which the government already has, but they want to keep us on fossil fuels for some reason? It's not that the aliens won't share. It's that there is a super government that is suppressing all this information. A super government? The Majestic Group. Lizard people? I don't know. Maybe they're maybe they're lizard people. It could okay. be. Have they updated the website since Trump came to office? No, because no. the last letter was written to Barack Obama. <laughs> like obviously, he's shown that if there's anything interesting, he cannot not say anything. <laughs> like if there were aliens that the U.S. government knew about and they briefed him on it, we would all know by now. But see, here is the thing, and this is why disclosure is so so important. Because this meta-government, this transnational government that is outside of the checks and balances of normal government proceedings, even keeps the President of the United States in the dark on mm-hmm. what it knows and what technology it has. So he might not know enough to spill the beans. Exactly. And so that's why there was a letter written to Barack Obama trying to inform him that all of these things are happening and that this group exists because it is very important that the President know these things. Well, but ha- was that one of the 10 letters a day that he read or did it just get 
shoved into the pile. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. Stephen Greer and the Disclosure Project don't really go into much detail about the Majestic Group, although they do keep saying that it is a transnational secret government and it secretly controls the world. So what are they trying to do? Well, the Majestic Group knows about all of these things, but they're actually running a massive false flag operation here. So they know that there's aliens. They, (laughs) They know that there is advanced tech. So what they're doing is they're making alien-type vehicles and putting them out there. They're called alien reproduction vehicles. Holy (laughs) (laughs) It gets better. Just listen. So these are secret Air Force vehicles. They're made to look like alien ships using the advanced technology that the aliens brought. They're making programmed life forms as well, which are completely fabricated, but would appear to the public as aliens to get us scared of things. And that's really what they're trying to do. They're trying to make aliens scary. They are trying to make this fear from the skies and make us all terrified of the extraterrestrial threat so that they can then unify all of humanity behind one giant military government. (laughs) (laughs) I think you actually broke him. (laughs) This is why I love this segment. It just keeps getting better. It's just layers and layers and layers and layers. How... And it's so important to disclose all of this because the aliens, having communicated with Greer and his organizations, are explicitly non-hostile and do not want this type of military, like massive military government. Exactly. Okay, so so (laughs) does that mean that every UFO sighting is actually, we're sighting the fake UFOs? Or some of them are the fake ones, some of them are the real ones? One of the best things about this, I guess, is that any particular UFO sighting that is shown to be either false or a hoax is then... Well, that's just part of the conspiracy. Well, and it, <laughs> it so rapidly retreats into unfalsifiability. It really does, and it retreats into the everything is a conspiracy. Uh, in the letter written to Barack Obama, they they note that while there is overwhelming evidence, the information that's available in the public domain has been doctored by this group so that it it shows the opposite of what we've found. (laughs) They state over 80% of the American public believes in UFOs and the government's silence on this just breeds conspiracy. So it's time the government acts on this and opens up. Uh, They state that they have more than 400 witnesses and 100 video interviews to date of people who have witnessed different things, either firsthand or heard conversations that they weren't supposed to hear. And they're credible sources. And they use the word credible source over and over and uh, over again. But they also don't always use names and things like that because these people have taken great personal risk and at the risk of huge amounts of ridicule, which they do mention how these people get ridiculed, to come out with their stories. And they they sort of liken these witnesses to whistleblowers that they are they're finally letting out the truth so that everyone can understand what exactly is going on. So what they want is they want congressional hearings on this topic to know what is going on, what is known, what is not known. They want bans on space weapons. Basically, they want a legislation that encourages peaceful interaction with these beings. 
So why are they petitioning the American government? Why aren't they, like, taking this to The Hague? Well, because the... The Hague is just a front for the super government. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that they thought that far ahead. They keep making <laughs> mention of various countries that are realizing the truth and doing this. And, and in different publications, they name different countries. So I'm not quite sure. But I think it's that, look at these countries, see what's going on. It's time for our country to act and to know this. They also claim that the U.S. government is spending $100 billion a year on this secret government, um, even though nobody or very few people in the government know that they're spending all this money on it. So that's a problem because, and they say, like, look at all the health care that we could have bought with pe- for people if we weren't spending it on this secret government that's trying to turn everybody <laughs> against the aliens so that they can have total control of the planet. And... Um, they they were trying to raise somewhere between two and four million dollars to complete their full testimony project to get the interviews from all the people who are coming out. And sadly, they've only been able to raise about five percent of that. So it, it's so been really tough on Stephen Greer, who's been working 18 hour <laughs> days, seven days a week as of one of his most recent posts um, in order to get this editing done and, and get these projects out Has there. He tried Kickstarter. <laughs> so that's the disclosure project. I really recommend you go to the C-SETI site. I really do. It is great. I'm kind of mad that they're, like, co-opting some of SETI's legitimate reputation by using that name. Yeah. Please go to the C-SETI site. They have information on how to contact aliens, extraterrestrials, (laughs) what to do when you go out looking, what to look for. Under their position papers, again, I don't think they know what a position paper is because this paper is titled UFO slash ET phenomena observed by C-SETI field teams. I don't know that this is a position position. paper. It is a document. Our position is that we've seen seen some (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, pretty much. My position right? was out in the field with binoculars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this is a combination of types of things that they have observed and also things for other people to look for. They have all sorts of different categories of types of observations. I'm just going to read the alleged meteorites because it's great. Incoming ET craft can often appear to look like a meteor. However, sometimes they act very different than a normal meteor. They may move more slowly than a normal meteor. The second meteor follows the same path through the sky within seconds. They move across the sky in a horizontal manner. Their flight path changes direction, sometimes by as much as 90 degrees, or they zigzag in flight. A number of meteors fall along the same path during the evening. Remember, these are for alleged meteors. Was this during the Perseids? (laughs) During the Perseids, yeah. (laughs) They respond to thought command to change direction. Oh, good. Whoa. That's exciting. (laughs) Um, They are larger, brighter, and more spherical. So they're asking a lot of, like, astronomical classifications of lay people here, probably through a naked eye. I'm a little concerned about these kinds of classifications. These seem pretty in-depth. They flash bright or get dimmer on their own, or in response to being signaled at with a spotlight or laser light. They may be huge, brightly colored. They may enter a building through a window. That's how you know that it's not a meteor. (laughs) But this would be a hint, you guys. But this, this is the best. That would be a firefly. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, they observed one that happened in England in 1997. This is the best one, though. They just feel different. Hard to really describe or nail down. 
This flip feels like a UFO. And, like, the hard to really describe or nail down is in parentheses, which just makes it better. I want to believe. Oh, I was losing it at work when I was reading this today. Oh, good. Oh. So, if you're looking at something in the sky and it just feels different, you might be seeing a UFO. So... Those are, if ever you feel like UFO hunting, C. Seti has some things for you to look for. Honestly, I'm a little worried about Stephen Greer. Um, I think he should be a little bit more careful with what he's saying, because (laughs) I'm worried that the super government is just going to take him out to a secluded location and blow dry him. I looked up the app. That logo looks like a fidget spinner. (laughs) (laughs) It does. So the last update was in 2015, and it has full support for the latest versions of iOS. There's been seven reviews. The most recent, from four years ago, was by Newfie Scaffolder, that said, This ET contact app is rated number one, my opinion, ampersand. It worked every time I've used it. (laughs) All I have to do is play the crop circle tones and have good intent in making contact, and most time a craft of unknown origins fly overhead and will sometimes single back in different ways if they chose to do so. Namaste. What? <laughs> it, that is exactly what I would expect. Every time I use it with good intent, a craft appears in my head. Okay, so let's close things out with just a brief overview of the government investigations that have been conducted into UFOs. Several ufologists, including Timothy Good, claim that General MacArthur established the Army Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, or IPU, sometime in the 40s to study and retrieve crashed UFOs. So far as I can tell, though, this claim hasn't been confirmed by any reputable source. And why he would name something the IPU, I don't know. In 1960, NASA commissioned a report titled Proposed Studies on the Implications of Peaceful Space Activities for Human Affairs, which is more commonly known as the Brookings Report. The Brookings Report, so-called because it was prepared by the Brookings Institution, which is uh, one of the older American think tanks, was submitted to Congress in 61, and it is popular among ufologists because... Well, it doesn't explicitly recommend that the government cover up any future encounters with ETs, it notes that this information could be societally disruptive, which ufologists point out is an excellent motivation for a cover-up. So I'll quote briefly from page 183 of this very long report. Anthropological files contain many examples of societies, sure of their place in the universe, which have disintegrated when they have had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies espousing different ideas and different life ways. Others that survived such an experience usually did so by paying the price of changes in values and attitudes and behavior. So ufologists consider that pretty good grounds for a cover-up. In December of 1950, Transport Canada established Project Magnet under the direction of radio engineer Wilbert Smith, with funding from the Defense Research Board and the National Research Council. The goals of the project were to study UFO activity, believing that this line of inquiry might allow the Earth's magnetic field to be exploited for propulsion purposes. In 52, 
Wilbert Smith issued a preliminary report contending that UFOs were likely extraterrestrial in origin and that they were indeed probably powered by magnetism. Wilbert was also involved in Project Second Story, a government committee set up in 1952 and tasked with cataloging UFO sightings in Canada. That's second story as in house, not second story as in narrative. And for American listeners who are confused as to how I could possibly know that, it's because in Canada these two words are spelled differently. They're not in America? No, they're not. What? I know, it's weird. My world is rocked. Anyway, uh, funding for both of these programs dried up in 1954, but reportedly convinced that he was in telepathic communication with extraterrestrials, so that's a, a close encounter of the second kind, Wilbert Smith continued pursuing these projects out of his own pocket until his death in 1962. Probably the most famous government investigation into UFOs is Project Blue Book, which was conducted by the U.S. Air Force from 1952 through December of 1969, although it built on the work of earlier Air Force projects Sign and Grudge in the late 40s. The goal of Blue Book was to scientifically analyze any UFO-related data and to assess whether UFOs might pose any threat to national security. I thought it was to evaluate the price of your used car. <laughs> Blue Book was closed as a result of the final report of the Cordon Committee in 1968, which essentially concluded that the project was a waste of time and money. <laughs> <laughs> According to the United States Air Force, Project Blue Book concluded, quote, No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to our national security. There was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge, and there was no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. So let's just light some money on fire. Just much easier. So, if these aren't extraterrestrials, what are they? Well, many UFO sightings have been explained. Most often, they turn out to be astronomical objects. Meteors, planets, bright stars, and surprisingly frequently, the moon. <laughs> By the time Project Blue Book was terminated, the Air Force had collected 12,618 reports of unidentified flying objects, and concluded that the vast majority of them were misidentifications of either natural phenomena, like the moon or clouds or stars, or of conventional aircraft. The Department of Defense's National Reconnaissance Office has also revealed that some of the reports were likely the result of sightings of the formerly classified Lockheed U-2 and A-12 reconnaissance aircraft. UFO reports have also been traced to sightings of artificial satellites, flares, searchlights, and missile launches, as well as the more prosaic explanations of balloons, birds, and lenticular clouds. On some occasions, mirages such as the Fata Morgana have been implicated, and if you haven't seen a Fata Morgana image, I highly recommend looking them up. The, the photos are really interesting. Some UFOs, however, are described as moving at incredible speeds, making impossible maneuvers, and the like. Turning back to Chariots of the Gods for a moment, Von Daniken claims that while, quote, a simple housewife might mistake a strange cloud or a weather balloon for a flying saucer, quote, when, for example, a sighting of UFOs is made by an experienced airline pilot, it is hard to dismiss it as humbug. Hmm. So this is the uh, expert observer phenomenon that we encounter yeah. often when 
when discussing UFOs. So much undeserved credit. (laughs) So in the varieties of scientific experience, Carl Sagan relates this story about a UFO observed by the pilots of an aircraft. Quote, The pilots were radioing about fantastic right-angle turns, defying the laws of inertia, estimated fantastical speeds. So this UFO turned out to be a firefly (laughs) that was trapped between two adjacent panes of glass in the cockpit window. It is trivially easy, especially in the dark, to mistake something small and close for something large and distant and fast. This is one of the reasons that it's not very convincing when ufologists trot out pilots, astronauts, and other expert observers to claim that extraterrestrial spacecraft are the most plausible explanation for UFOs. We all have the same fairly faulty sensory information available to us. Our sensory systems just aren't that good. We're not perfect observers, none of us. While outright hoaxes are rare, estimated by researcher Alan Hendry to be less than 1% of UFO reports, a number of the more famous UFO photographs are probably best explained by the hoax hypothesis. Only a small proportion of the UFO sightings collected by Project Blue Book remain unexplained. All the same, the vast majority of ufologists do believe that alien visitors are the most probable explanation for UFOs. So much so that when people talk about UFOs, it's frequently assumed they mean alien spacecraft. And hey, it's not impossible that some of the as-yet-unexplained sightings are of alien origin. While our current understandings of physics present an insurmountable challenge to crude interstellar spaceflight, that understanding of physics is obviously incomplete. But in the cases where UFOs have been positively identified, they have never turned out to be alien spacecraft. And claiming that those that are unexplained are alien spacecraft simply because we don't have any other explanation is an argument from ignorance. It's a sort of aliens of the gaps. It's always okay to say, I don't know. Well, uh, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Thanks, Jim. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? Next month, we are going to be exploring a historical topic, and we are going to be talking about heretical scientists. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman. As our listeners are probably aware, UFO stands for Self-Contained Underwater Breathing Apparatus. F*** up, Jim. Now you get the pouring noise. Light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation? No. Nope. Uh, oh, disc and execution monitor. No, that's not it either. Oh, uh, sports utility vehicle. Because if you're going to be traveling interstellar distances, you're willing to sacrifice a little fuel economy for the comfort of knowing that your family is protected by world-class safety features, and that extra leg These room aren't can't even the be right beat. Letters. Can you shut up and keep moving, please? <laughs> I'm just trying to burn off any residual goodwill I accrued by officiating your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> that might take a while. 
Is it Mushy Peas? What was that commercial? It was Mushy Peas. Mushy yeah. Peas. <laughs> well, he he was also Optimus Prime, wasn't he? No, was he? <laughs> he was something. <laughs> I think his last film role was the voice of Optimus Prime. Holy sh! You're right. <laughs> The Fuhrer died quickly in 1947. The person who... <laughs> <laughs> not Fuhrer. Not Fuhrer. <laughs> yeah. Fuhrer is not the same as Fuhrer. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about one more specific UFO encounter that was widely reported before we turn our eye to the subject uh, more broadly. Is it the encounter at Farpoint? No. God. I think we've had enough Star Trek references this episode. <laughs> we've met our quota, and then some. It's more like a cap. Can I institute a cap instead of a quota? <laughs> it includes a magnom- magnometer? Magnetometer? Mag- whatever. Mag- magnemometer? Magnemometer, whatever. Uh, yeah, that one, that thing. Sea SETI expedition yields first ever photograph of an extraterrestrial. Wait. They're claiming that this is the first ever photograph of an extraterrestrial? The clipart baby? Now they're trying to explain some of the contradictions in the XF data. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look shocked. <laughs> it, 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 if this is a shop job, this person does not know how to use Photoshop. This looks like absolutely nothing. General MacArthur established the Army Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, or IPU. That's an amazing name, and then it got better. <laughs> Sorry. Or IPU, sometime in the 40s. Okay, <laughs> one, two, three. The Army Interplanetary Phenomenon. <laughs> oh, Ashlyn, you ruined it. You emphasize a bit in, in July. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. Um, There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll go down on you. That's just idiotic if you'll forgive me by saying so. That's just stupid. In July. I'd love to know how you emphasize in and in July. Impossible. Meaningless. 